got tonight, the book of Romans chapter 5. You know, I had no idea until I got here tonight that this was the first service in a long time on a Sunday evening, and I'm thrilled uh, to be a part of it. This is, a, as he just mentioned, a wonderful crowd tonight. You know, it's interesting uh, with the COVID era and uh, pre-COVID, post-COVID, and all these terms that we now use. The Bible says in Hebrews, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. The closer we get to the Lord's return, the Bible says we're supposed to meet more. That's an interesting thought in our post-COVID world. <laughs> and so I just thought we'd throw that out as sermon number one. All right, sermon number two, uh, Romans chapter five. In the word of God tonight, Romans chapter five. Um, for those of you that were part of the virtual meeting a year ago, we touched on this truth, but I did not feel like I could communicate it properly over Zoom. And uh, this is such an important truth. You know, it's interesting to me. I told you this morning some of my own journey. Uh, God awakened me to grace in 1992-93. God awakened me really to the person of Jesus and much, much more in 1999. Uh, the concept of a clean heart, 2001. In other words, I can tell you uh, different truths, different years, and uh, life-changing moments. Well, another one of those moments for me was the summer of 2000. So right in the middle of COVID, uh, God stirred me with a particular truth. He brought a number of things together uh, to bring this across my heart. It was a truth that in general the Lord had stirred me with back in 99, but crystallized in much more detail and much more importance uh, back in the summer of 2000. And so let's look at this tonight. It's a wonderful truth. It can liberate because there's a lot of people that down deep really do want to do right. They may not be living like it, but down deep they want to, but they wonder why aren't they living like it? What's wrong? Why is it that they're wanting this wonderful outcome and that outcome seems to evade them? And it seems like, you know, every time they're trying to do what's right, it's like a carrot and it gets pulled away and uh, they fall flat on their face and they don't understand why. We want to deal with that tonight because we need to know why. God doesn't want us to keep uh, uh, tripping up like that uh, for our entire lives. So this is very important. Now, the book of Romans is a gospel book. In fact, chapter 15, verse 16 refers to the entire book of Romans as the gospel. And we see the gospel to sinners in the first five chapters, justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. And then we see the gospel to the saints in the next three chapters, Romans 6, 7, and 8, sanctification by grace through faith in Christ alone. And then we have an emphasis on God's system in uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11. It's all by grace, and the access is faith, and no man can change that. And then you come to chapter 12 and verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. And it takes all that doctrine from uh, uh, those previous chapters and begins to apply it. So the last four chapters are at, uh, give us that application. So our text tonight is the bridge between the gospel to sinners and the gospel to the saints. This is the platform as we move into the gospel to the saints, as we move into accessing Jesus by faith. This is the platform of truth. And often we miss this. We start in Romans 6.1, and we miss this platform, this focus that is given here that is remarkably important. And so let's begin to read in verse 17. The scripture says, uh, Romans 5, 17, for if by one man's offense, death reign. Now notice the word reign. We're going to see it occur a number of times. It means rule, have dominion. So uh, by one man's offense, that's Adam, uh, death reigned by one. Much more, notice the contrast here is superlative, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life. 
That's now. By one Jesus Christ. To come back to that in a moment, verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made. That's your word, constituted sinners. We're born that way because of Adam's sin. So by the obedience of one shall many be made. Again, it's that word, constituted righteous. What does that mean? Verse 20, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Did you notice the purpose of the law? It is not to empower you to do right. It's to show you when you do wrong. <laughs> That's the law. In fact, Timothy tells us under inspiration that the law is not for the righteous, it's for the unrighteous. It is not there to empower us to do right. The law is not a person. The law is the law. It's holy and just and good, but its purpose is not to empower us to do right. Its purpose is to show us when we blow it, when we do wrong. That's very significant. We'll see why here in a few moments. But where sin abounded, ah, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned, ruled, had dominion unto death, even so might grace, that spirit enablement, reign, rule, have dominion through righteousness unto, which is literally your word, into, as it accesses the eternal life of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, backing up to verse 17, it says, They which receive the abundance of this grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign, rule, have dominion in life. That's right now. I want to ask you, does that describe your present experience? Reign, rule, have dominion. That's what it says. They which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life right now. How? By one Jesus Christ. So you have a text here that says the righteous reign. Now most of us consider ourselves struggling sinners. <laughs> so you can pick the focus of struggling sinners or the focus of the righteous reigning. Now the key is the real focus, and that's going to be on a person, and we'll come to that as we move along in this text tonight. But I want to deal tonight with the subject of the righteous reigning. Let's pray. Let me encourage you to pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to be your teacher tonight. And I mean ask him and look to him to open your eyes. Blessed Holy Spirit, we need you tonight to be our teacher, to open the eyes of our understanding, to give us clarity as to what this means, to move us from wishful thinking to a confidence based on bedrock truth as it is in Jesus. Lord, I plead the victory of Jesus through the shed blood. Protect us from Satan's attack tonight, who certainly doesn't want us to see this at all. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd knock out Satan's deceptions and the murkiness that often hinders. <clears throat> and so, Lord Jesus, we claim our position in you on the throne. And in your name, exercise your authority over any powers of darkness that would seek to hinder at this hour. And trust you that that not be allowed. For, Lord, we need a fresh vision of you and a fresh meeting with you. We ask for it. May you be lifted up. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a young preacher in the ministry, I remember hearing an older preacher say, if you want victory over sin, man, that caught my attention because <laughs> I needed it. He said, if you want victory over sin, memorize Romans chapter 6. I thought, wow, is that all you got to do? Man, I can do this. 
I was a good memorizer in those days. <laughs> it's not quite the same today. But in those days, man, I could memorize. So I memorized Romans 6. Man, I could stand there and I could quote Romans chapter 6. And guess what happened? <laughs> Nothing. Other than the fact that I could quote Romans chapter 6. Because if you don't understand what you memorized and depend on it, accessing it by faith, then it's just an intellectual exercise. Have you ever noticed that the scripture says in Psalm 119, thy word have I hid in my heart? You know how most of us interpret that? Thy word have I hid in my mind. That's essentially what that scripture is saying in that place. But it doesn't say mind. It doesn't say it. It's implied, but it's much more than the mind. It says, thy word have I hidden or treasured in my heart. See, it's much more than just the intellectual exercise of the mind. Well, what is the much more? What is the heart? Well, let me back up for a second. I want to ask three questions to help us understand this matter of the heart. The first two questions, you do not have to raise your hand or nod your head. Just answer the question to you, inside of you, okay? You don't have to, to do more than that. Uh, the third question, uh, I will ask for a bit more, but first two questions you can just quietly answer in your mind. First question, on an average day, how many sins would you say you commit compared to acts of righteousness? <laughs> so what I'm looking here for is, is ratio. This many sins compared to this many acts of righteousness. So average day, how many sins would you say you commit compared to acts of righteousness? Got a number? <laughs> All right, let's go to the second question, whether you got a number or not. On a scale of 1 to 100, now this is similar, but there's a different nuance here. On a scale of 1 to 100, what percentage of your average day would you say is righteous? All right, scale of 1 to 100, what percentage, I'm looking for a percentage here, of your average day would you say is righteous? So do you have a percentage in mind? Now, third question, I want you to respond by raising your hand and heads will not be bowed, and eyes will not be closed. <laughs> Third question. If you have not sinned today, raise your hand. I don't see any. I see one now. <laughs> it's a little late. <laughs> now, if you could not raise your hand, what sins can where people have actually written down the information, they've tallied it and taken the data. On the first question, on an average day, how many sins would you say you commit compared to acts of righteousness? The average audience, Christian audience, says three sins to one act of righteousness. Now, there was one seminary class that only had two sins <laughs> compared to one act of righteousness. But the average audience, it was three sins compared to one act of righteousness. On the second question, what percentage of your day uh, on a scale of 1 to 100, what percentage of your day would you say is righteous? The average audience said 30% up to 60%. But notice most of that is below 50%. That's the average Christian audience. Viewed the percentage of their day that was righteous somewhere between 30% and 60%. So most of that is on the low end. On the final question, if you have not sinned today, raise your hand. Most audiences are like yours. Either there's no hand or there's one. That's all I've ever had since I've been doing this. But when I asked the follow-up question, if you couldn't raise your hand, what sins came to mind? In some cases, people say, yeah, I got ticked, I said this, or whatever. But in other cases, man, I can't think of anything, but I'm sure I did something. Mm -hmm. Okay, so 
that's what I'm after here. The I'm sure I did something. See, what that is, it's a viewpoint that you are a dirty, rotten sinner. And we think, well, you know, I, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, I, I don't know what I did, but I'm, 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 you know, I'm just a dirty, rotten sinner, so I'm sure I did some things. Okay, what that is is a dirt ball mentality. It's a dirt ball heart. Now, let's talk about the heart for a second. Your heart is the reflection of your soul. Your soul is your mind, your affections, and your will. So on a, on a given day, we have all sorts of thoughts come into our mind. Uh, we're driving down the street, see the dogs, we see the birds, whatever. But those thoughts go right back out just as quickly as they come in. But there are other things, especially things of, that are much more important, that we latch onto in our mind. And when we do, they affect us. So that's your affections. And affections produce involuntary emotions. And when that kicks in, all of that shoves our will to the choices that you and I make. The heart is the summation of that process. It is the reflection of your soul. Let me word it this way. It's what you really Tonight, I am not that interested in what you say you believe. I'm interested in what you really believe. Because for many people, they say they believe this, but they really believe this. And friends, the Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Now, the context is very interesting, but the bottom line is this. The thinking in his heart is actually the thought process, what you really believe. Then it says, so is he. And the next verse uses the term heart to describe all that. You see, we all have a way of thinking. Our way of thinking reveals what we really believe. We all have a certain process, a paradigm, a mode of operation that reveals down deep what we really believe. See, that's what we're after tonight. That's your heart. It's what you down deep really believe. Not what you've been taught to say you believe, but down deep what you really believe, because what you really believe is what you act out. All of us act out what we really believe. See, as a man thinks in his heart, as his, as his way of thinking is revealing what he really believes, that's what he acts out. Now, in most sermons, uh, we have our, you know, our, uh, and we're taught in homiletics, you know, you, uh, by the way, that just means how to make a sermon. And uh, uh, we have fancy words to make you think we're smart. But at any rate, <laughs> in, the, in homiletics, we have our proposition statement, and then we have our, you know, three points in a poem, whatever, to uh, support it. I want to flip that tonight, and I want us to start with our three points. And then we'll end with that proposition statement, so when you hear that word again, you'll know we're almost through. Now, let's start with the three parts to our discussion tonight. First of all, let's begin with the description of a sin-conscious heart. The description of a sin-conscious way of thinking, or I could say it this way, the description of a dirt ball mentality. Because we need to understand what this entails and see if it describes our own way of thinking. You see, the sin-conscious mindset or way of thinking, the sin-conscious heart, focuses on your version of law. Now, most of us would not say, I'm focused on the law, but we would say this. I've got to make sure I've got to this today, you got to not do this. Okay, that's what I mean. That's our version of law. It is our set of rules, we might say. It is our list of do's and don'ts. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Please do not misunderstand me tonight. There are things we should do and things we should don't do. <laughs> but the question here is 
the sin conscious heart, a way of thinking, the focus is on the, 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 the law of how Christianity should play out. Uh, our understanding of what Christianity should look like. Our list of the good things to do and bad things to stay away from. In other words, we could say it this way. The focus is on not sinning. You say, well, man, that sounds good. I know it does. I lived there for years. But do you know if you're focused on not sinning, you're focused on sin. And if you're focused on sin, it's going to lead to what? Sin! What a deception! Here we are focused on not sinning. In other words, it's an outcome focus. We're focused on this good outcome where you do this and don't do this. And by the way, obviously there are things that obviously we need to be doing and things we should not be doing. The issue here is focus. And if your focus is on the outcome, got to do this, got to not do this, that means you're focused on not sinning, which means you're unwittingly focused on sin, and it leads you to sin. What a tragic deception. Because when all of that happens, you live in fear. When will I go down again? How long will it take this time before I blow it again? And so there's this fear. And so you have these feelings of Fear, you have feelings of, man, I just got to try harder because this isn't working too well. And you got feelings of unworthiness because you don't measure up. And you have feelings then of insufficiency because apparently you don't have what it takes. And then that leads to feelings of frustration because you can't achieve your goal. And that leads to feelings of guilt because you're failing. That leads to feelings of condemnation and your conscience is beating you up. And the accuser of the brethren is glad to join right in and say, yep, you're a dud. You're a failure. Man, what's wrong with you? And so on. And yet at the same time in this main mindset, we're judgmental of others. Because if you're focused on, you know, not sinning, then not only does it lead you astray, you're focused on what everybody else does, doesn't do right either. And so there is a judgmental, judgmentalism that uh, is ironically a part of this mindset. Now, from this belief system about ourselves... Living the true Christian life would be living opposite of what we believe we are. <laughs> so obviously this is a contradiction and there's a great hindrance there. Now, before we go on to the second part of this discussion, let me take a moment to compare the sin-conscious heart with a God-conscious heart so we can further understand where we presently are. We noted in the sin-conscious way of thinking, or in the sin-conscious heart, that you're law-focused. But we've noted that the law, as we already saw and we opened up the text, it has no power to help you obey. It only shows you when you don't obey. So if you're focused on law, it's discouraging. Because you're just finding out when you're blowing it. You see, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, this was a shocking verse to me back in 1992, 93, in the story I told this morning. But it says, the letter... itself has no power to enable. It just shows you when you do wrong, and thus it's a ministry of condemnation. In fact, it's called in the next verse in 2 Corinthians 3, a ministry of death. Why? Because it shows you when you do wrong. So if you're focused on the law, you're focused on death. But in the God-conscious heart, instead of being law-focused, you're Jesus-focused. Instead of being death-focused, you're life-focused. 
focus because Jesus is that eternal life and that abundant life. You see, instead of focusing on not sinning, you're focused on the righteous one. Instead of focusing on a list, you're focused on a person who has power to enable you to actually live in a way that is honoring to God. Wow. You see, in the sin-conscious mindset, we're in that mode of fear. When will I go down again? And the God-conscious mindset, we're in the mode of faith or confidence or, or just a, a trust in God. In the sin-conscious mindset, there's the mode of try harder. In the God-conscious mindset, there's that mode of resting in Jesus. In the sin-conscious mindset, there is that sense of unworthiness because we don't measure up. But in the God-conscious mindset, now don't miss this, there's actually a sense of worthiness in Christ who measured up and continues to measure up for us. What an amazing reality. In the sin-conscious mindset, there's that sense of insufficiency. We don't have what it takes. But in the God-conscious mindset, there is a sense of sufficiency, God's sufficiency, because he does have what it takes. In the sin-conscious mindset, there's frustration. In the God-conscious mindset, there's peace. In the sin-conscious mindset, there's guilt. In the God-conscious mindset, there's joy because we're free in Christ. In the sin-conscious mindset, there is condemnation. But in the God-conscious mindset, there's no condemnation because the love of God is being shed abroad in our hearts. In the sin-conscious mindset, uh, we're judgmental of everybody around us. In the God-conscious mindset, we're actually not judgmental. In the sin-conscious mindset, living the true Christian life would be unnatural because it's opposite of what we believe we are. But in the God-conscious mindset, living the true Christian life would be natural because you're accessing the Christian life himself. So there's the first part of our discussion. I want to ask you at this moment, where do you find yourself? More on the sin-conscious heart or way of thinking? Is that what describes your way of thinking most, or would it be the God-conscious way of thinking? Now, before you answer fully, let's move to the second part of our discussion tonight. Let's move from description to diagnosis. We live in the age of symptoms. <laughs> so I want to give seven symptoms <laughs> of a sin-conscious heart. Seven symptoms of a sin-conscious way of thinking, or the dirt ball mentality. Now, please don't misunderstand me tonight. Apart from our provision, we make messes. I get that. And they're dirty. But talking about who you really are before the Lord and what we believe about that. So I want to, let's diagnose the sin conscious heart uh, where we believe wrong and give seven symptoms of a sin conscious way of thinking. Now, this would be assuming that you know the Lord as your Savior. First symptom is you consider yourself still a sinner saved by grace. The key word here is still. You consider yourself still a sinner saved by grace. Now, obviously, if you're saved, you were a sinner according to the need of salvation. And if you're saved, yes, there's no other way. It's by grace through faith in Christ alone. But the question is, are you still a sinner? I'm not asking, do you still sin? I'm asking at your core, at your core, are you still you see, the Bible truth is, if you're saved, you were a sinner. 
and you are a saint who can still sin. But it's a different viewpoint to say I'm still a dirty, rotten sinner versus I'm a failing saint. Now, obviously, when we got saved, there's some miraculous provision that takes place. We'll talk about it at the end of the message uh, so that we can access Jesus. And when we do, we access his victorious life. So we're able, through faith, not to sin. Now, we, it's not automatic, so we're still able to sin. And we uh, show that and experience that far too often, and that's why we often view ourselves as just, you know, I'm still a dirty, rotten sinner. But the fact is, if you're saved, no, you're not. Now, one time Paul calls himself still a sinner. He says, I am, present tense, chief of sinners. But in context, he's actually referring uh, to his testimony before he got saved, how he was persecuted in the church. The emphasis of the New Testament is, when you got saved, something radical changed. And do you know that 63 times... And the relatively short piece of literature called the New Testament. The inspired text calls believers in Jesus saints. 63 times. Holy ones. There's something radical that occurs in the new, new birth where God is calling his children holy ones. So not saints in the sense of how religion uses that term, but saints in the sense of how God uses that term. There is holy life put into you when you're born again, whereby God is calling you a saint. Do you know as children of God, God is not against us because of our sin, even when we do ignore everything and we sin. He's not against us because of our sin. He's in us against our sin. And strangely, even when God calls out our sin, it's called conviction. You just ask the Holy Spirit to do that when you sing the song, Search Me, O God. But even when he calls out our sin, he calls us saints. Well, he calls out our sin that doesn't match up with who we are. I have a dear friend. He's with the Lord now. I miss him. Uh, anyway, he had a little poem that he came up with. He said, I once was a sinner, but now I'm a saint. Maturing I am, but perfect I ain't. <laughs> so well said. We get that. So considering yourself still a sinner versus considering yourself what God calls you a saint. You say, preacher, how can I even say that? I'm living like the devil. I'm doing this. I'm so defeated. It's pathetic. Okay. I'm not talking about the dirty message you make. I'm talking about who you are at your core. We'll see more of the importance of that here in a moment. Secondly, second symptom of a sin conscious or dirt ball mentality. You assume you sin often even without knowing it. And thus, the answer to that question, well, I don't know what I did, but I'm sure I did something. Now, I understand the Bible talks about sins of ignorance. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this idea, even in the things that you know are sin, and thinking, well, I don't know when I did it, but I'm sure I did it. Well, now, wait a second. If you're saved, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Does he not warn you when sin is approaching? Okay, so my point is, you would know that you sin. It's this idea that we just sin all the time even without knowing it. Wait a second. That doesn't fit. And by the way, even if you get desensitized, where you trample your conscience to the point that you really are desensitized, if you actually cry out as the psalmist said, and as we sang tonight, oh God, would you search my heart, the Holy Spirit will immediately show you what's wrong, and you, know, you will know exactly what it is. 
Do you know that the Holy Spirit never convicts generally? He always convicts specifically. General conviction is a counterfeit from the enemy to get you to follow the wrong voice. When the Holy Spirit convicts, you'll know exactly what it is. But my point is, that's just it. This idea that we're sinning all the time, even without knowing it, well, that means you're just going to have this guilty conscience all the time, if that's what you think. And that's going to affect your relationship with God, not him toward you, but you toward him, because you're going to be hanging your head in shame. You know, I'm in about 40 churches a year, give or take. I'm in Christian schools. Occasionally, I'm in a college. I'm in Christian settings all the time. You know what's fascinating to me? Is to see how many people walk down the hallway with their head down. And there's no joy. And there's just this cloud of guilt going down the hallway. That's this dirt ball mentality. That's this sin conscious mindset. And we almost glorify it by saying, well, you know, I'm just a sinner. <laughs> well, we were sinners, but we're saved. And there's something radical that changed. And if we're walking around with this guilty conscience and the sense of shame all the time, obviously that's going to affect our faith and hinder our prayers. Number three, third symptom of a sin conscious sin. Uh, um, mentality or sin conscious heart. You assume it is normal, keyword, you assume it is normal to sin regularly. Say, well, you know, I shouldn't have done that, but hey, I'm only human. Ever heard that? Ever said that? <laughs> That's one of our excuses. Well, I can't really help it, I'm only human, you know. In other words, we just assume that it's normal to sin regularly. Now I get why we say that, but does the New Testament teach that? Do you know, just a few chapters from here in chapter 8, it says we are more than... Wow, that sounds a little different. Do you know the New Testament says this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. In other words, the presentation, the tilt, the weight of the New Testament is victory. That's not automatic. It's by faith. And that means you can ignore it, and you can make a dirty mess. Yeah, I get that. And thus, we have the warnings to flee fornication. Flee also youthful lust. We have the admonishment, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We have that beautiful wording in 1 John 2, uh, my little children. I love that. These things write on you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate, a lawyer with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And as we saw this morning, praise the Lord, when we do blow it, when we ignore our provision, and we make that dirty mess, we can walk It says, little children, I write unto you that you sin not, and if any man sin. See, that's the exception, not the rule. When often we're thinking it's the other way around, that it's normal to sin, and it's the exception to have a good day. And see, you act out what you really believe. See how important this is? Let's go further. A fourth symptom of a sin-conscious heart. You believe that temptation itself is sin. Oh, how can that even be in my mind? God, forgive me. Okay. You believe that temptation itself is sin. Now, there are some in this audience, you know, you've been taught right, you know that temptation itself is not sin. 
mark in the interim. So that's why I'm asking you to leave. If a sinful thought comes into your mind and you immediately confess it, you think complete and sin. I did two years ago. You know what I did all day? You see, if temptation itself is sin, we're in trouble. Because there's lots of triggers, aren't there? Traps, snares, pictures, sounds, smells, <laughs> all sorts of temptations out there. Boom, it's, you know, we're triggered. And, uh, you know, with all the traps and snares in our world system and the fiery darts from the enemy, good night. If temptation itself is sin, we are sinning all the time. But do you know the Bible says Jesus was tempted? In all points like as we, yet without sin. So temptation cannot be sin because Jesus was tempted. Do you get that? And that's why Jesus said, pray that you don't enter into temptation. Ah, oh, that helps us. That means the temptation is not sin. It only becomes sin if we enter into it. Somebody said, how much time do you have? Somebody else said, four seconds. <laughs> I do know this. <laughs> there is a way of escape. His name is Jesus. But the point is, temptation itself is not sin. But if you immediately just confess it, then down deep you believe it is, and so you're pummeled by the end of the day. The reality is there's that opportunity to reject that temptation and take the way of escaping Jesus. Now, I had a guy challenge me on this. He said, yeah, but what about that verse in Proverbs? It's actually Proverbs 24, verse 9, that says the thought of foolishness is sin. Well, look it up. The word thought means the scheme. The devising, the planning to do evil. See, that's far more than just the thought in your brain. That's entering into the temptation. And so we need to see the difference. Let's go to a fifth symptom of a sin-conscious system of belief. You assume it's easier to sin than to do right. Now, if we all act out what we really believe, and you believe it's easier to sin... Then to do right, what are we going to end up doing? We're going to sin. See, we all act out what we, re, what we believe, even if what we believe is wrong. Years ago, I was in a meeting in uh, the west of the United States, and the pastor had been at his church a, a good while, and he was loved by his people. And he noticed one day, uh, one, uh, uh, one spring, that as uh, he's looking at the calendar, that April 1st is going to land on a Sunday. So uh, it was back in the days when you had Sunday school and then the morning service. It's pre-COVID. <laughs> and uh, uh, at any rate, he, uh, he, uh, at the end of Sunday school, he gets up and very somberly and soberly announces his resignation. Well, people were not rejoicing. They were great. I mean, they loved this man. And they, uh, people burst into tears. So they dismissed, you know, between uh, Sunday school. He makes himself aloof so they can't get to him. And they're crying. They're getting, how could he? There's all these groups gathering around. It's a big mess. I mean, it's a mess. And then he sneaks back in as the morning service starts and says, April Fool's. You know, it did not go over. <laughs> <laughs> and three months later, they got him back. In Christian love, of course. <laughs> now, when they were all crying and weeping and whatever, whatever, he hadn't really returned. Now, let's chew on this. Is it really 
easier to do right or is it easier to sin? Why does the Bible tell us in 1 John 5, 3 that his or God's commandments are not grievous, which is the word burdensome? Now we may say, okay, preacher, <laughs> I know that's what it says, but I'm telling you, man, it seems like a big burden. Okay, what that means is you don't understand God's economy. In God's economy, our responsibility is faith. Faith is not a work. So it can't be a burden. Faith is not a work. It's dependence upon the worker, God. And when you depend on God, he gives you grace. He enables you. He does the work. There's a supernatural empowering. Ah, that's why his commandments are not grievous or burdensome. What did Jesus say in that beautiful passage, one of my favorites in Matthew 11, when he said, come unto me? He goes on to say, for my yoke is... And you're accessing him. And his shoulders are a whole lot broader than yours. <laughs> now, is it difficult and hard for a dog to act like a dog? <laughs> no. Is it difficult and hard for, let's say, a pig to act like a pig? No, they just act what they are. Okay, well, if you are a saint, should it not be easy? not burdensome to act saintly. Let's go further. Number six, now this is a big one. Sixth symptom of a sin-conscious heart or system of belief, the dirtball mindset. You assume that your default mode, that's a key thought, your default mode is to sin unless you deliberately choose righteousness. Now I lived in this for years and Quite frankly, it's easy to go back to that old mindset because we ingrained it in our heads, but it's, it's got to get kicked out. You see, you assume your default mode is to sin unless you deliberately choose righteousness. Now look, if that's what we really believe, then the burden's on us. That's a pain. Because it's all up to us to pull us off. You know, that's not true. That's not accurate. If you're saved, there's something radical that happened. There was an actual severance, it's called death, to sin. There was an actual cutting between your human spirit and that sin entity that's in us. In other words, when there's a trigger of temptation and you feel a pull, that sin that dwells in us, not sins, but that something, that entity in us that urges us and influences us to commit sins. Okay, we used to be joined to that guy, but when you got saved, you died in Christ unto sin. You got set free from that. of God's nature is to choose God every time. You're a child of God. And the reality is your default mode is Jesus. Righteousness. Unless you deliberately choose sin. Wow. Died to sin. Raised with Christ a new man now. Joined to Jesus. Do you know when you walk in the spirit, that is when you walk in this provision 
of the Spirit. Your regenerated spirit, and then the, the bigger truth, joined to the Holy Spirit. When you walk in the provision of the leadership and power of the Holy Spirit, bringing that life of Jesus right into you, everything you do in those moments is not I but Christ. And you know when it's not I but Christ, everything you do is an act of righteousness. <clears throat> you back on that question, the ratio Acts of righteousness compared to acts of sin on a given day, it should be totally overweighted on the acts of righteousness. Because everything that you and I are doing when we walk in the Spirit, in the provision of the Spirit, is not I but Christ. And when it's not I but Christ, it's an act of righteousness. Look, when you look to the Spirit and trust the Spirit to get out of bed when you should, it's an act of righteousness. Because you're accessing Jesus. And if it's, if it's Jesus, if it's not I but Christ, it's an act of righteousness. You see, when you're walking in the Spirit, it's not after Christ. So when it's not after Christ, and you change the baby's diapers, let me tell you, that is really an act of righteousness. <laughs> See, it's not just when you're at a Bible study or going out soul winning or something like that. Everything a Christian does when he's not caving into his flesh. In other words, when he's yielded to the Spirit, he's walking in the Spirit. It's not I but Christ. It's got to be an act of righteousness because Jesus is righteous. Well, I was in a meeting. Well, I told you about that meeting in Tennessee where that revival took place. Well, one of the guys in that meeting, he got a hold of this. Whoa. And uh, uh, one day that week, his wife was coming home with the groceries, and she said, honey, can you open the door? He said, yes, man. He grabbed that door. He's thinking to himself, act of righteousness. <laughs> and she's looking at him. <laughs> like, What's going on over there? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. My father worded it this way. The new nature is a new natural. A new default mode. That's the real default. Just like you have a computer and you set the default to this printer, and that's what's going to happen unless you choose otherwise. Okay, your default mode is Jesus, who is righteousness, unless you deliberately choose sin. That truth alone could radically turn everything upside down. And then number seven, the seventh symptom of a sin-conscious system of belief, you assume God loves you more when you perform well Unless when you don't. Now this is huge. Because in our world, everything is performance-based. But in God's world, everything's opposite of man's world. In God's world, Jesus did the performance. Our job is faith. Faith is not a work. It's dependence upon the worker. <laughs> and so, yet, we often think of it otherwise. And we think, oh man, you know, I've, I've been righteous for two weeks. You know, this is going to be a great day. God's got to bless me now. I've earned it. No. You just stepped out of the blessing. Or if you're thinking, man, I blew it. Yeah, I've confessed it, but it'll be another two weeks before God will bless me again. All of that's performance-based, whether it's negative or positive. The truth is, that's not true. God, God, Because God loves us, and this gets so trite to us, but God loves us unconditionally, which means he loves us as much on our worst day as on our best. Much more could be said, but all these symptoms reveal deceptions. They reveal lies. And if three or four or more of these describe us, then that's why we're having trouble, because we all act out what we really believe. So let's move from the description and this diagnosis to the deliverance. Let's get to the positive side of this. The deliverance for a sin-conscious 
way of thinking or the sin-conscious heart. See, if you have a wrong way of thinking, there's an obvious solution in the general sense, and that is you have to change your thinking. Now, there's a Bible word that means change your thinking. What is it? It's the word repent. Change your thinking, not just understand in your mind or agree in your heart. Change your way of thinking. Switch your grids. You see, if you have a sin-conscious heart, you gotta, you need a heart change. See, the, the underneath what you really believe that is manifested in your mode of operation, that's what's got to change. you you got to believe truth. Now, what's the truth we have to believe? Well, let's get back to our text, because we did have a text tonight. <laughs> and let me quickly point out three truths, and we'll expand on these, Lord willing, perhaps tomorrow night. But three truths. One, number, one, number one, there is positional truth. We sometimes call it in the theological world, but it is a wonderful truth. This is the truth of justification, whereby the moment you put your faith in Jesus, you're declared righteous. We saw in verse 18 the word justification. In chapter 5 and verse 1, it tells us when this happens. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the point. The moment you believe in Jesus. In other words, when you understand sin is the problem, clear at that moment of belief in Jesus who died and rose again you see your sins have been imputed to him so that when you believe on him his righteousness is imputed to you in other words it's what the Bible calls justification when you believe on Jesus you're declared righteous because his righteousness is credited to your account so from a legal positional standpoint from that moment onward when God looks at you he doesn't see you with your sin he sees you with the righteousness of Jesus now I want to ask you a question what percentage of righteousness does Jesus have Scale of 1 to 100, what percentage of your day would you say is righteous? Now, most of us take the question as, what percentage of your day would you act righteous? But that wasn't the question. It was the <clears throat> What percentage of your day is righteous? And you know what? The answer should be 100%. Do you know this, friend, that when you walk into heaven, you will walk in with your head up? Because you don't walk in on your choices and gotten in the fourth stage of depression and takes his own life which is an absolute tragedy and walk into heaven with their head up they do we're not talking about judgment seat we're talking about just entering heaven and we go in on the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's 100% but there's another truth 
that can form our way of thinking, not just positional truth, provisional truth. Now, in recent decades, this truth has been ignored in many of the theological books, and I don't know why, because it didn't used to be. It's a vital truth. It's absolutely critical. Provisional truth. This moves beyond justification to regeneration. Not only are you declared righteous, that's justification, there's a part of you that's made righteous. Now, I pointed up the word in verse 19. As one man's disobedience, many were made, okay, constituted sinners, okay? So by the obedience of one, that's Jesus, shall many be made righteous. See, that's more than a justification. This isn't just that you're declared righteous. That's a marvelous truth. There's a part of you that becomes righteous, is constituted righteous. You see, the human constitution is made of body, soul, and spirit. Now, there is one level when we legitimately call ourselves a very ball. And that's the body level. Because Genesis tells us, dust thou art, and unto dust, so thou return. So we'll always return home, but that's it. But beyond the physical, there's the soul level. faith, and there's lack of progress when there's unbelief, but then there's your human spirit. That's where regeneration takes place. And that human spirit is made up of God's divine nature. It's God's DNA inserted into you so that you can become a partaker of the divine nature. And that part of you is righteous. It's God's nature in you, which is loving and holy and good. And even on our worst day when we ignore it, that's who that's why God calls you a saint. That's where the Holy Spirit moved in. There had to be a part of you made holy so the Holy Spirit could actually move in. So back to that thing that we, you know, excuse ourselves and say, well, I'm, you know, I'm only human. You know, that's not true. You're not only human. Wow. There's a part of you that is constituted with the very nature of God, DNA. We'll see why that is tomorrow night. It's incredible. It's astounding. It's why God calls you his child by birth. Wow. It's not the absence of our weakness. It's the presence of his strength. Then the final truth, practical truth. See, positional truth, justification, declared righteous, provisional truth, regeneration is a part of you that's made righteous. But now there's practical truth. There's a faith access. And faith is not a work. It depends upon the worker. Uh, that's why we need to have our minds renewed in what's actually true so that we, we believe right. And when there's the faith access, you live righteous. You experience the righteousness. See, see, thank God that we're declared righteous even though the soul and body haven't caught up yet. And yes, there's a part of us that's constituted righteous. But when we by faith trust in Jesus, we actually experience his life, which is righteous. Now look. The spirit-filled life is never a license to sin. Never. It's never a license to go down the wrong road. Because Jesus never does that. The spirit-filled life is when you access Jesus. It's the, it's the spirit filling you with the life of Jesus. And Jesus always does right. Always. So how does this work? Back to verse 17. It says, if by one man's offense death reigned... Much more, they which receive. Now, notice it goes from the one man to they. They, child of God, they which receive. See the word receive? 
There are many places in our New Testament where that is translated take. And I emphasize that because we often interpret it in our minds as be given. <clears throat> That's not what this is saying. It is saying that you take what is being given. And it's also in the present tense, which means this is not a one-time thing. This is far beyond the moment of salvation. This is you keep taking. Well, keep taking what? What does it say? The abundance of grace. But grace is that undeserved favor of spirit enabling. It's that supernatural enabling through the Holy Spirit to do God's will. It is that yielding to, trusting in his leadership and power in your life. And so they which keep taking this abundance of grace. You know that God is there to lead you. God wants you to know his voice. And he wants to empower you with his very life. And so those who keep taking, they keep receiving this abundance of spirit enablement. His leadership and power in your lives. And friends, when that's the case, it goes on to say, and the gift of righteousness. See, righteousness for us is always a gift. Because <laughs> we can't come up with anything that matches the standard of God. That's why we need imputed righteousness and justification and imparted righteousness and sanctification. For us, righteousness is always a gift. And so they which keep taking this mega grace, this abundance of grace, this abundance of spirit enablement, this abundance of God leading and empowering you, and therefore you're empowered by his life, and that's righteousness, that gift of righteousness. Here's what it says. Those who keep taking shall reign, rule, have dominion when in life. Isn't that amazing? This isn't future, it's present. God wants you to experience his righteousness, his righteous life reigning. Shall reign in life that's right now. Now here's the key. By one, Jesus Christ. And this is where we miss it. We focus on righteousness when we need to focus on the righteous one. See, by one, see, focus. This is what God has been teaching me the last number of years and just crystallized in a very special way for me in the summer of 2000. Focus. Why is this important? Look, whatever or whoever you focus on is whatever or whoever you depend on. And Hebrews 12, 2, the scripture says, looking unto Jesus, right, focus, the author of faith, right, dependence. I don't ask that. That means if we look unto something other than Jesus, then we're depending on something other than Jesus. And friends, the object of our faith has to be Jesus. See, this is Remember studying Romans 6, that came alive. And remember started preaching that 20 years ago. And then I would jump over into Romans 8. And I kept skipping Romans 7 because I didn't have no idea what it meant. <laughs> See, Romans 7 is the wrong focus. It's Paul as a saved man. He, this is fascinating. Do you know that Galatians tells us there are 17 years that go by between Paul's conversion and what we start reading about in the book of Acts where he starts uh, on that first missionary journey? 17 years! He's learning what we've been learning for the last 17 years. And what happens in Romans 7 is Paul's now saved after the inner man. I delight to do what's right. But remember what he says, the good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that I do. Everything's a mess. Why? It's because when you read that part of the chapter from verse 7 down to verse 13, it's law, 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 law. Now, the law is holy and just and good. We're told that in that chapter. But that's the chapter that's telling us it can't be the focus. Because the law doesn't empower us. A list cannot empower us. 
and so we're focused on law, our version of law living, our version of God, we just got to not do this. Our outcome focus, it's something other than Jesus, and as good as it is, and usually it is good. Now, sometimes we add to God's law and all sorts of things, but, uh, but even if it's just actually God's law, it's still the wrong focus because the law is not there to empower you. And whatever you focus on, you depend on it. So you see Paul, he's got law, commandments, law, commandments, law, commandments. And then he switches in verse 14 to I, I, the good that I would, I do not, the evil that I would not. I, 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 I can't do it! Oh, wretched man that I am. And then he switches from the what, the law, to the who. Who shall deliver me? I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. And friends, that's where he switched focus. Now, friends, I didn't have this right in my early days. You know, we are where we are in our journey. I was awakened, I told you about it, in 1993, to grace. I was awakened to the power of the Spirit. And I'll tell you what, that's, that's a great awakening. So here was the problem. Man, I was so excited about God's power to get in my box. <laughs> Wrong focus. And when that happens, whatever you focus on, you depend on. Well, if you focused on something other than Jesus, the law has no power to enable, and therefore you default back to self-dependence. That's why Paul goes from law, law, law to I, I, I can't do it. And so in my own journey, I'd wake into this power of God, the grace of God, uh, the right source. And that's a great awakening because that's better than the wrong source. But my goal was still something other than a person. Case, you default back to self dependency. You don't even have the power you're preaching. You see, if you focus on holiness, which is what I did in my early days, it will evade you. But if you focus on the Holy One, you don't have a holiness as a This isn't the excuse to do wrong. It's the way you actually do it. But you don't focus on the outcome. You focus on the person. And when you access Jesus, you do that. Because he always obeys the law, the way God intended it. Which might be a little different than the way we intend. But nonetheless. Now friends, where's your focus? The focus has to be on a person. See, Jesus is not only the source of power, he's the goal. By that I mean he's the leader. He's the object of our faith. And see, when we, when we take our eyes off of him and make the outcome our object, we just missed it. Because that is the wrong object of faith, as good as it is. And so the focus has to be on the person. See, the living word. Wow. When that's the case, the righteous Rain. See, if you focus on patience, anybody here need patience? The more you focus on it, the more it will evade you. <laughs> and all it's going to take is that Lego without your shoe on and you're, <laughs> you're uh, saying things you shouldn't say and things are becoming airborne that don't have wings. It's just slinging this and that or whatever around the house. <laughs> but you know, if you focus on Jesus...
by focusing on the person. I hope this makes sense. Because it can be life-changing. Now, what would or should a guest preacher do if he's headed to a meeting, but before he gets there, he finds out, man, there's trouble in that church. And, uh, you know, uh, they've got members. I mean, you know, major big-time members, and they're, they're living in immorality, and everybody knows it. And they're not doing anything. And not only that, the last Lord's Supper, they used real alcohol, and people were getting drunk, and it would be a mess. And then at the last business meeting, they had a knockdown, drag out the bike, and now there's four groups vying for power. Well, the church is the First Baptist Church of Corinth, and the guest preacher that was headed there for a meeting was the Apostle Paul. Now, I changed the TV guest, I'm not doing that. <laughs> that was the JRD. My own preference. Now, what did Paul do? You say, man, I bet he let him have it. You know what he did? He wrote him a letter. He's, you might say, well, I, I bet you he called them a bunch of dirt balls. That's not what he called them. Now, this is amazing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Them which are sanctified called saints. <laughs> you got to be kidding. Sanctified? <laughs> saints? That's what he called them. Now, from that platform, he dealt with their sin. Because now there's hope. You see, if it's just the kiboshi without the hope, then wait a second. I have the holy life of Jesus in me. This doesn't have to be played out like this. Because he dealt with it that, life, that way. And then when he got into 2 Corinthians, man, here's life in the sin. Get your focus back on Jesus. Well, that brings us to our proposition statement. You say, man, I thought you'd never get to that word again. Well, here it is. <laughs> now, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will reprove, that's the word convict, or convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Of those three, sin, righteousness, and judgment, when we think of Holy Spirit conviction, which two of the three are predominant in our mind? Sin and judgment. Strange how we leave out the righteous one. So here's the proposition. Let the Holy Spirit convict you of righteousness. Met a girl once when I was at the service, and she's about 25, and she's fresh in her eyes. She says, uh, Charles Reverend, Brother John, what do you mean convicting of righteousness? Good question. The word convict simply means to convince. Let the Holy Spirit convince you. Your spirit was regenerated with the divine nature of God, which is righteous. And then the Holy Spirit brought the life of Jesus, the righteous life of Jesus, right into you. Let the Holy Spirit convince you of righteousness. Because when you're convinced, and you really believe it, we all act out what we really believe. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Thank you for your kind attention tonight. A couple of thoughts as we bring this to a close. We saw a moment ago that if we have a wrong way of thinking, we need to change our thinking. It's called repentance. That is the Bible word. And friends, this cannot be wishful thinking. It's allowing the Holy Spirit to so convince us that we become convinced that a lot of these ways of thinking are based on a wrong paradigm. 
a wrong heart. And friends, when you see the truth, you're justified. That's 100%. You're regenerated. That part of you is righteous. It's God's nature. And there's a simple faith access. When you yield to the leading of the Spirit and trust that life of Jesus, that life animates yours. And it's still you. It's still your personality. It's still your face. But there's this divine animation. There's this divine life. There's this divine carrying power. It's not you trying to mimic righteousness. It is the righteous one animating you. Ah, yes. And so let's change our thinking. Let's let the Spirit of God convince us. Father, I pray that you take the truth deep in our hearts, so deep that we actually believe it, that we're convinced. And Lord, for some, I pray this will be watershed where that's needed. Lord, a radical shift, a paradigm shift. Lord, for others where there has been awakening, Lord, keep bringing into clarity the right focus on the person. Lord, obviously we want a right outcome if we have a heart for you. But Lord, help us to focus on you in order for that to actually take place. So Lord, use the truth in a way that sets free. With our heads bowed, if God's spoken to you, would you take some time to talk to God about what he's talking to you about even now as the piano plays?